Hey, Emily. Greetings, Greg. So Halloween is uh, fast approaching, and um, to the surprise of no one, Gritty is expected to be a very popular Halloween costume this year. Now, if you want to be Gritty, the Philadelphia Flyers are like a crack dealer giving away free samples of crack, trying to encourage you to dress like Gritty. Said the Flyers... Are you getting gritty this Halloween? Reply to this tweet with your best NHL gritty NHL costume for the chance to win four tickets to Saturday's game. So they're showing kids wearing the gritty beards behind a giant gritty tent, and there's a picture of gritty. So the Flyers are now incentivizing people, in not only in the Philadelphia area, but the tri-state area, but maybe even across the country, to dress like gritty. Halloween. So my question to you, Emily, as we get past this part where we talk about the Flyers enabling this madness, how many over under 100 sexy gritty costumes do you expect to see on social media in the next two weeks? Well, I was about to say, I think my favorite thing about the idea of a gritty costume is that the less effort you put in and actually the worse the costume is, the better you do. As for sexy gritty, though, I'm definitely taking the over. (laughs) Would sexy gritty have Google eyes. Uh, the googliest. <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up on the show, a very fun show. It was a good show. Bruce Boudreaux will join us, the head coach in Minnesota, Minnesota Wild. Speaking of coaches, Neil Glassberg, do you want to learn a little bit about? He is an NHL coaching agent working on how to build the brands of NHL coaches and also uh, he and I talk about the time that we uh, got really mad and nasty with each other over email because, you know, that's kind of just what happens when you're in my hemisphere. Uh, all right. With that, let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, a national NHL reporter. And the first topic today we're going to talk about are angry, bruised goalies that are sad because the NHL made them change their gear and now they're all banged up and hurty. And this is one of the biggest topics of conversation at the beginning of the season. You know... Changes in goalie equipment are always the biggest topics of conversation at the beginning of the season. But I have to admit that in covering this league for a long time, this is the first time I've actually heard goalies being like, "We're not, it's not just that we're upset that we might be less safe. We're upset because we are actually less safe because of what the NHL has done. I find it fascinating. You know, one of the questions I ask players usually in the beginning of the year is if you can make one rule change to make the NHL better, what would it be? And to the surprise of nobody for the second straight year that I've asked this, a majority of the forwards answers were make the equipment smaller. Hmm. Um, as Connor McDavid told me, as long as they're protected, that's the main thing because guys shoot the puck so hard now. It doesn't make sense for a goalie to be 160 pounds and when he gets out there, he looks like he's 250. A skating player can't fake how big he is. It's so funny. Like four different players that I asked this to reference this. They, they're 160 pounds when we see them off the ice, but when they're on there, they look like a monster. But the big thing Connor said there was as long as they're protected, and I think he's just trying to make a friend in Cam Talbot there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing. These guys are complaining we're not protected. It's not just, you know, people were kind of laughing on Twitter when we put out those quotes like, yeah, they're getting bruises. But bruises are serious, and this is a player safety issue. And, you know, we've seen some of the top goalies go down this year. I'm wondering if this is going to start to be a trend. Well, before we get to that, yeah, you know what? We should really make it easier for Connor to score goals. I feel like there's been such a disadvantage for this kid since he's came into the league. We really need to shrink the goalies to make sure that it's easier for Connor to score. Um, so what they've done is they've adjusted the chest protectors and they didn't like make them smaller. They don't actually measure smaller. What they've done is take away some padding on the shoulders so they can't, in the words of, of the NHL, make saves they're not supposed to make. And then they took away some padding on the arms. And that's where the issue is so far this season. You have goalies like Sergei Bobrovsky, a rather accomplished goaltender, who said, 
I'm becoming afraid of the puck because of how much it hurts when we're hit on the arms now by shots. Uh, Brian Elliott, same thing, said he's all bruised up on his arms. Ben Bishop, same thing, uh, saying that he's been hurt by shots to the arms of these things to the point where he became one of a couple of goalies now already this season, Bobrovsky included, to start wearing the chest protector he wore last season in practice when he faces like 400 shots and then wearing the new gear during games. So my issue with this with the NHL is in the past when they've made equipment changes, they've made these changes for functional reasons. You shrink the pads so goalies when they drop down can't cover up the five hole because their pads are so large. Um, you take away parts, other parts of equipment to allow them to, quote, not make saves they're make saves they're not supposed to make in this one the change to the arms and the padding on the arms according to a couple of the goalie coaches i've talked to is much more about changing the silhouette of the goalie it's making them look smaller to the shooter it's not functional it's not trying to prevent goalies from sort of cheating with the size of their gear it's trying to give shooters more space to find open net because over time Goalies have gotten bigger. The net has stayed the same size. So now they're trying to kind of slim the look of goalies to make sure that they're not, you know, to, to try to give the, the skaters a better advantage of trying to score goals. But in this change, it just seems like they might have gone over the edge on this one a little bit. So here's, I think, the burning question. The NHL is seeing a bit of an uptick in offense. It's too early to make any huge, you know, proclamations about what that means. But do you think this is due to these pads? And if so, does that mean that these pads have to stay? I think there's a certain element to that. Um, I think anytime you change the equipment, the goalies are trying to adjust to that change. Mm-hmm. And early in the season, that's going to result in, in more goals. Um, but I think the bigger issue for me... Well, let me pause on this for a second because you make a good point, which is that the trade-off to having incredibly entertaining hockey games, to having record scoring, to having now several must-see teams based on how well they play offensively and how many goals they score past these goalies, is the trade-off to, for that versus goalies get a little bruised up. Like, isn't it better for the game in sort of a psychological or philosophical totality to have more offense and more scoring and more entertainment versus having goalies, you know, not have bruises? Is do the needs of the many outweigh, outweigh the needs of the few or the one? I don't know. It's a good debate to have. But in this case, I just feel like maybe when goalies are saying, ouch, this equipment change is hurting us, we feel unsafe. That's always been the fallback for these guys. It's like, hey, you know, if you change the equipment, we're going to get hurt. And now they're actually getting hurt. And I feel like maybe they need to rethink this a little bit and maybe go back to at least getting back to last year's padding on the arms because that seems to be the real issue here. Agreed. You know, it, but the scoring part of it is interesting. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's always a tough call to figure out exactly how far to go with these equipment changes and, and things of that nature. But I have a feeling that so many, so many goalies are complaining about it that you figure the league is going to have to reassess it. The other bummer about this whole thing is they only got the gear about a month before the season. So they really didn't have a chance to break it in or, or to adjust or to figure out what changes they needed to make to compensate for it. I don't know. It's it, This one seems like it went a little bit too far. And, and and to speak to your earlier point, like how bad does the NHL look if somebody breaks an arm on a shot because of, of the equipment? And then people are like, just drink more milk. Your bones were weak. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be exactly what they say. But, you you had early onset osteoporosis, yeah. Brian Elliott. Yeah. No, I do find it interesting. And I just, I this is on me. I need to find out a little bit more about how these decisions are made of who's in this committee that actually approves this equipment. But the fact that they were only giving it a month before the season, I think is what's most troublesome. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I find interesting is we see the NHL is all about groupthink and felt like nobody was talking up and then all of a sudden Sergei Bobrovsky is the first to say look I'm unhappy with it and everyone else is comfortable sharing their thoughts like yeah. Ben Bishop to you is your Christian had some pretty telling quotes from Braden Holpe who said sooner or later somebody's going to get hurt and mm-hmm. so on yeah and so on and so on I don't know it, it'll be a developing story as per usual they'll probably not talk about it come March uh, but uh, for now the goalies are, are pretty cheesed off Well, a lot of pucks are being sent by goalies, Emily. And if you need to send something anywhere around the world, use Stamps.com, a proud sponsor of ESPN on Ice. These days, you can get practically 
everything on demand. Like our podcast, for example, you can listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. But did you know you can also get postage on demand? All you need is stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package. All available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just click print mail and you're done. It's a very convenient thing around the holidays. I tend to use to send stuff to people that don't live anywhere near me or that I've moved away from, you know, for personal reasons. Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale. You can weigh your letters and packages and print the same amount of postage every time. I'm not saying I don't like my aunt. She's a very nice lady. I'm just saying that I don't live near her. So to send her a present around the holidays, I would use stamps.com. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not a personal thing. It has nothing to do with offensive odors. I'm just saying that she doesn't live near me. Mm, so I just have to use stamps. Yeah, exactly. With stamps.com and the digital scale, you can weigh your letters and packages and print the exact amount of postage every time. So right now, listeners to ESPN and ICE can use the promo code ICE, I-C-E, for a special offer, a four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the word ICE at stamps.com and enter ICE for your four-week trial. You know who might be on trial this season, Emily? Who's that? Bruce Boudreau, because he's got a new general manager in Paul Fenton. And as you know, GMs always like to get their own coaches. I We, we asked Bruce about that and a great many other things during a delightful conversation with one of the most colorful personalities in the National Hockey League. Let me ask you first. You had to dole out some coaching advice this week to your team. You had to tell them to put more pucks on the net, shoot more. And lo and behold, the offense came. How maddening is it for you to have to keep doing this with teams? <laughs> you know what? And it's it's funny, but you have to do it to every team every year because these guys are so good they think they can make every play. And sometimes they forget the guys they're playing against are really good too. So you find out most of the goals are scored by rebounds and going to the net, and and that's what you do, and that's how you score. And uh, uh, they needed a friendly reminder, and they found out it works. Good. We're only three weeks into the season, but I'm just curious, are there any storylines or trends you've seen that are kind of sticking this year? Um, you know what? The, the great lines in the league are really started out great. Um whether it's the Shifley line in Winnipeg, the McKinnon line, the the Kuznetsov line, the, these guys have not taken a back seat. And, and what I've noticed is sometimes it takes a while for the great players to get going because they've gone through the, the finals or they've, they, you know, it's just uh, they'll get there. But I've, I've found the great players in this league have started out really great this year. What do you think about this offense We've had in the first couple months or the first month of the season last year. Well, was the I haven't same sort seen of it thing. on our team. I wouldn't mind getting eight goals one night or seven, but um, it's uh, it's been crazy. And the other the, to go along with that, the other trend is the amount of shots on goal. I think is uh, there's been four or five games already where teams have had over fifty shots on goal, <laughs> and I thought that was that's really different than in normal circumstances. Let me let me follow up on that. You know, when when you were coaching in Washington, you played a very offensive style. Uh, you know, it wasn't fire wagon, but it was definitely more offensive than most teams were playing at that time. And you know, eventually got criticized for it when it didn't produce, produce results. But do you feel like you were ahead of your your time? Do you feel like you were ahead of the curve as far as the way that you wanted to coach and the way that the league is played now? Geez, it's a tough question to answer because I've always felt uh, when I was a player that if I was ever going to be a coach, I was going to be an aggressive coach and try to win the game rather than try not to lose the game. And I think I was really luckily blessed in the years in Washington. We had I didn't change anything up that I did in the minors, even though in the minors we were always at one of the top-scoring teams as well. But when you have Ovechkin, Backstrom, Fedorov, and Green, and, and you can go on down the list that you're going to score – and um, we just wanted to make sure that we were playing in the other team's zone more than we were playing in our zone. And so we took chances in their zone. And we got pucks at the net, and everybody met at the net. 
and uh, we scored a lot of goals. But when you have Alex scoring 50 and 60 goals every year, it's it's not hard. <laughs> well, Coach, one of the trends I've seen this year, maybe it, it coincides with all these shots, is everyone's talking about these new restrictions on goalie pads. You know, we have forwards and skaters every summer saying, slim them down, slim them down. And now that they slimmed them down some more, the goalies are like, well, we're getting hurt. It, it, it's not safe for us. I'm just curious as a coach, what's your perspective? Well, you know what? It hasn't happened on our team, so I haven't really heard. I've heard about it, the rumblings about it, but I mean, our our two goalies have not made any uh, hint about hint about it um, that it's either they're getting hurt more or uh, anything else. Or you know, I mean, Dubnik has been absolutely fantastic. So uh, whatever he's wearing, I don't want him to take it off. So uh, you know, like I mean, uh, but. I think sometimes uh, uh, they might be get, getting a little bit more hurt, but I don't think the league would uh, put them in something that could potentially hurt them. So sometimes I think they're just trying to uh, shop for to get back the old bigger equipment. Always wine, come on, you know that. It's always always, always they, they're always complaining about something being taken away, and then it, it, it winds up not being a big deal. You stop hearing about it in March, right? That's kind of how it works, right? Yeah, and nobody will hear about it next year. <laughs> Let me ask you about another guy who's playing well for you, Eric Stahl. I've been long fascinated by this next chapter in his career. You know, he left Carolina, the Rangers trade didn't work for him, he goes to Minnesota, and all of a sudden rediscovers the magic. What 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 was it about Eric Stahl, or, or what is it about Eric Stahl in your system that seems to have retapped the offensive dominance that he had when he was younger? You know, I, I really don't know if it's the system, Craig. I, I think what happened in his latter years in Carolina is, you know, they were always rebuilding and he wanted to be on a winner. And then they said, okay, you got to play with the young guys and bring them along. And now you're the, um, <clears throat> you're the older guy that's going to be the mentor when he was still young enough that he wanted to be the star. And, and we gave him that opportunity to be the first line center and to be put in that position where I think he was for the first eight years of his, his NHL career. And all he did was uh, show why he was there. And we, instead of giving him young players to play with, we gave him real good players to play with. <laughs> and instead of putting him on left wing, uh, we kept him at center, which is his natural position. So I think that's what the big difference. And then I think uh, mentally that really got him going. And after that, he was really good. Your team got a new GM this year. I'm just curious as a coach, how is your job different? I mean, when you've got a first-year GM there or maybe just Paul in general, you know, what's different about your day-to-day from, you know, working with someone for a long time like Chuck or, or now? I just think the questions are different. Um, you know, everything else is the same. I, I still do whatever I'm doing, but the questions are different. There's a couple things that he he wants that, uh, say, Chuck didn't want or Chuck wanted different things than, than Paul wants that you do and you adjust. And, um, but other than that, the communication's really good and everything else is going well. How do you deal with the perception or how do you respond to the perception that when a new GM comes in, he's going to eventually want his own coach? <laughs> it's not like I haven't been fired before. <laughs> but you as you know, I've, I've, writ- I've written I gotta this. Do the, I got to do my job, and I, hopefully I do it well. And But, listen, I was in the minors for 33 years, uh, so I'm sort of used to everything now. I've written this many times. The only times you get fired is when you're not on a 100-point pace. So just stay at a 100-point pace. You're fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Easy That's, in your division. That's and, you know, the, the one in Washington... We were. We just actually we were on a 160 point pace. We were seven and zero to start the year, but we lost a couple in a row when I got fired, and that was that. Jeez. Speak, hey, speaking of the Caps, I was wondering, did you have any contact with guys that you used to coach uh, when they were younger after they finally won the Cup in June? I mean, you you had them so many of them when they were kids. Uh, I don't know if you, maybe you had had interactions with them during the summer at all. No, I, I haven't had that. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them, though, and congratulating them um, when we see them next month. What did you make of their celebration as someone who's, you know, seen those guys, like Greg said, earlier in their career? Did you know what had, they had it in them? Oh, had it in them. They've been, they've been waiting to explode for 10 years, <laughs> and they were always fun-loving and, and great like that. And Greg will tell you, we had, the first couple of years, we had the greatest um, goal celebrations of anybody. And uh, 
these guys, they deserved it to whatever they did. They stayed out of trouble and um, and had so much fun. And I think that's what winning's all about. Let me ask you, though, you know, you, you obviously came up with a bunch of those young guys in Washington. You know, you mentioned Mike Green and guys like that. How do you, now that you've been a head coach for, you know, as long as you've been here in the NHL, how do you deal with younger guys? Have the younger guys changed? Are the millennials different than when Ovi and Backstrom and all them were younger? Oh, yeah, I think so. But they've changed. But, uh, you know, I try to treat them the same. Maybe I, they, after they talk to me, they go, what the hell is he talking about? I don't understand a word he's saying. But I think I treat them the same way as I've treated uh, the young guys. I've always thought of myself, even though I'm getting older, as young-minded and uh, think a lot the way they think. So uh, that's, I think, been one of the things that I've done that I've done well and gotten lucky with has been able to communicate with the younger guys just as well as the as the older guys. What's the biggest challenge for you this year? Because I see your team and it looks a lot like it did last year. And you guys were a good team last year that obviously battled a lot of injuries. Like, what What is the biggest challenge of how you guys can get over that hump for you as a coach? Well, I mean, we got to stay healthy. Let's look at the, we didn't have Zach for the first 40 games last year. We didn't have Nino and Charlie and and uh, Suits at the end, and and Spurgeon missed 20 games. I mean, these are really great players. If we can stay healthy, I think we're going to surprise a lot of teams. Last one for me, Bruce. What do you do when you're not coaching or thinking about hockey? What what is your what are you binging? What are you watching? What are you doing? What are you reading? Are you watching old Nick Bockwinkle matches from the AWA <laughs> to buy you know your time? <laughs> no, but I I will watch uh, WWF matches from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> Do you have the network? Do you have the subscription to the network? No, but I mean, I have YouTube. Oh, hey, there you go. Do but you, watch- you know what I, I watch during the winter? Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to just watch hockey at night. I watch every game every night. Man, even I don't do that. You get I know it's stupid. Me, it's stupid. I think my wife doesn't like it either sometimes, but it is what it is right now. Well, let me ask you this. What, what is there a team that you, other than your own, enjoy watching as far as, I mean, is it, I'm going to guess it's probably the Leafs, right? Because that's the answer everybody has these days. Yeah, I, well, I like watching the Leafs, um, but right now I'm, I'm really focused on the Central Division teams. Mm-hmm. Um, or if Washington's playing or Anaheim, I stay up and watch them all the time. Uh, just old habits never die, I don't think. Are you upset that the Blackhawks aren't actually dead yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. They're, they're, when, now that Corey Crawford's there, they're going to be a good team right to the end. You're the best. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it, and good luck this season, man. All righty. Thank you. Well, thanks to Coach Boudreaux for joining us. And I just want to let our listeners know that Discover is the official credit card of the NHL. And with Discover, you can show how much you love your team everywhere you shop with a personalized card featuring your favorite NHL's team logo and colors. But no matter what team you root for, Discover is committed to rewarding all their new card members with cash back match. Only Discover offers a dollar for dollar match of all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. No caps, no signups. Redeem your rewards in any amount at any time and they never expire. With all of that extra cash, you can treat yourself to center ice seats to the game, your favorite player's jersey, or maybe even buy some headphones to listen to your favorite podcast on. Am I right? <laughs> so you can try it and believe it at discover.com slash NHL. It's only for new card members and limitations do apply. You know, Bruce mentioned something uh, during our conversation about the uh, consistency and the rise of dominant top lines and how teams are being fueled by those top lines. And yeah, I wanted to mention that because there, there are a few right now. Uh, Corsica, if you've not read Corsica, is probably the best stats site out there. It's great literature. It's, uh, it's great stuff. It's a, it's many, many rabbit holes you can dive down and, and the NHL has been clearly inspired by it and its advanced stats pages, which hardly work when you try to use them. Um, but, if you look at like the top 20 lines as far as production in this league right now, it's, it's real interesting. I mean, for example, goals for right now, um, you've got a couple of lines that have put up nine goals in the first nine games. That's the Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rantanen, Gabriel Landeskog line, and the Final John line right now. Oh yeah. And then the John Tavares, Mitch Marner, and Zach Hyman line, which obviously has just been, you know, on fire for the, uh, the Leafs. Um, the, uh, 
Michael Furland, Sebastian Ajo, Tevo Teravainen line. Did not expect them to be up here. <laughs> Seven goals for one against so far. A plus six goal differential, which is as good as the plus six goal differential for the Tavares line. And then you've got some holdovers from last year. The Marcheseau, Riley Smith, William Carlson line has uh, been pretty good, uh, you know, and, and definitely really good in comparison to what the rest of the team has done. Um, then you've got, uh, you know, the Marshan, Pasternak, Bergeron line, Philip Forsberg, Ryan Johansson, Victor Arvidsson in, in, in Nashville. You have uh, Goudreau and Monaghan playing now with Elias Lindholm and, and Calgary. Uh, and on and on and on. And obviously, you know, when they are together, uh, Ovechkin and Kuznetsov and their buddy Tom Wilson, whenever we get him back. Um, so there's a lot of really, really strong first lines carrying teams. We haven't even mentioned, uh, you know, whatever the combination of Drew and, and Couturier are in, in Philadelphia. What is what are, what are some of your favorite top lines and who do you think might be the best line in hockey right now? It's the hottest topic in hockey, right? Uh I'm tempted after last season, I probably would have put that Shifley Connor Wheeler line up there. I know they've started really slow. They actually only have two goals, four or five against. You actually put it out on Twitter. You were asked crowdsourcing from some Winnipegians of what the deal was there, and they all kind of blamed a poor start by Wheeler. That's uh, right. I will throw the flag here. Winnipeggers, okay. uh, oh, Emily. Do not. I'm so sorry to Yeah, I don't, I don't want the full force of the, uh, of the uh, Manitoba uh, military coming after you for not uh, properly identifying them by their uh, preferred nomenclature. Uh, look, I'm going to be honest. One of my favorite lines in hockey to watch is the Malkin Kessel and usually Haglin line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they've been terrific. But if I have to pick the best in hockey right now, it's oh, it's probably a toss up between that Boston top line. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, Colorado's right up there, mm-hmm. and you know what? It's uh, it's Kuznetsov. Uh, Ovechkin and it and, should be Tom Wilson and, Wilson and I'm putting him in there but you know whoever is there, there winger du jour there's no arguing the merits of the McKinnon line it's great mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the way that McKinnon and Rantanen have started off the season is remarkable Gabe Landeskog was the best player in the world of, uh, of the week on ESPN this week uh, in that uh, in that gimmick uh, but in their case and in the case of the Shifley line both of those teams are on the negative side pretty handily on on Corsi right now um mm-hmm. So the possession is not necessarily there, but you can't argue with the production of the McKinnon line with nine goals right now. Um, for my money, I still think the gold standard of top lines is the Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand line in Boston. You got a little bit of everything. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Uh, two explosive offensive players, uh, the best defensive center in hockey. You know, you could. It'll be interesting to see. I, I, I don't know if this is ever going to be a debate worth having. But like Bergeron versus Datsuk, as far as the most dominant defensive center that we've had in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, be an interesting conversation to have. I love that conversation. It's probably Bergeron at the end of the day, but I mean, God, it's, oof, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I, I think that line just for the, what they, they offer, how it's constructed, Bergeron being the linchpin for it, and all three of those guys can D up as well. Um, just a, a real dominating line. And of course, the goal differential they had last year was just obscene. Uh, as well, so for my money, I think it's still the Bergeron line as the uh, as as the gold standard. We should probably also mention Jersey's line, Heischer uh, and, and Hall and, and Palmieri. Uh, they've been pretty good together when they played together. Um, Barkov, Dadanov, and uh, 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 Dadanov rather in Bukestad with the Panthers have not been that good, but have the potential to be good. A lot of really good lines in this league right now. Um, but for my money, I think the Bergeron line is probably still the gold standard. Nashville's just like sleep on us, sleep on us. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a good line. I mean, it's definitely one that that carries them. I at think times. it's the most underrated top line in the league. Oh, maybe. Most... And I think part of it has to do with that it features two Europeans. Hmm. I do. I, I feel think... like Miko Rottenen would tell you, or I think his teammates would tell you. Well, Nathan McKinnon said the reason that Miko Rottenen doesn't get the credit is he doesn't play in New York, which I think is funny because has anyone we've just mentioned play in New York? No. <laughs> uh, but two, I think it's the fact that he's Finnish. I think the most underrated top line. That's a, that's a good question because, you know, I'm looking over here at um, the Panarin line for Columbus, and it's hard to call a, a line with Panarin on it underrated, but Panarin, Atkinson, and uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois is a pretty good line that doesn't necessarily... I mean, Panarin gets mentioned in every breath, but I don't think that trio necessarily gets mentioned. 
Matthews, Kapanen, and Marlow. I mean, obviously, Matthews is the guy who gets most of the, the shine on that line, but the line itself doesn't necessarily. Um, a line that I think is in a little bit of trouble, as predicted, Brian Little, Nick Ehlers, and Patrick Line. Now, three goals for it, five on five, six against. I'm still telling you, man, get, get yourself a center. Why are you trying to make Brian Little happen? Brian Little's not going to happen. He's the hockey version of Fetch. You need Ehlers and Liner to get another center. So it's funny, you know, you keep talking about Winnipeg needing a center, but the follow-up question is, every year there's A, not a Paul Stasny available at this trade deadline, and B, where are they going to get that money when they need to pay all these guys, including Line? Oh, I mean, that's easy. All you do is uh, alienate one of them, and then they go <laughs> off to Austria to train, and then you go over there and you offer a bridge deal and say, look at all the fun you're missing. <laughs> in the peg with the Winnipegians. Yeah, exactly. Do the Willie Nylander dance. All right. Our next guest on the podcast is a guy who is an agent to the stars. And by stars, of course, we mean NHL coaches. The biggest stars in all the land. Uh, Neil Glassberg joins us to talk about his gig and uh, all the other things that go along with it. And now joining us on the line from Toronto is someone I've gotten to know in my time in the NHL. And that's Neil Glassberg. Now, Neil is an NHL coaching agent, and the first thing I want Neil to do is to explain to his listeners the function of his job, because what I found most interesting is when I covered the NFL, everybody had an agent. An assistant running backs coach had an agent. College coaches, um, you know, very low people in management had agents. But up until recently, NHL uh, coaches kind of acted differently. So can you just explain that to me of, you know, how this all came to be? What do I have, like two days to, to get through this? <laughs> uh, uh, the, to make a long story short, your intro was great. Uh, my, uh, my springboard into this business really was football because uh, I had been representing coaches in the, uh, in the NFL and the uh, Canadian Football League and uh, quickly, quickly uncovered, uh, a, a, let's just say, the, a, a lacking skill set uh, amongst hockey coaches. Um, and uh, the value add or the value proposition for hockey coaches is multi-pronged, of course. Um, I, I, I tend to uh, position myself as a personal branding agent rather than a, uh, just simply an agent, which means that, of course, I do the contract work, of course, I do the negotiating, but I also add value relative to sort of any of the touch points that a professional coach might come across in their lives, be it wealth management, be it insurance, uh, uh, public relations, uh, any kind of uh, sponsorships, endorsements. I mean, the, the wheel, the value-add wheel is quite large, but um, there, there clearly was a, there was a need, as I'd like to say, based on how my business has grown over the years, uh, for somebody like myself to work with coaches uh, who more often than not feel like they're on a deserted island, <laughs> um, unfortunately, because of the nature of the job. And, uh, you know, one big piece of it, Emily, as I think you and I have, have spoken, is also in, in working with the media to make sure that their personal brands as coaches are being well understood, uh, well demonstrated, well exhibited, and are uh, put them, keep them, in a in a uh, you know in a positive uh, in a positive light, so to speak. How's so that? It's good. And something <laughs> else we spoke about that I'd love for you to share with our listeners is why you think it took so long for coaches to come around and realize they need this. And some of your theories, if I remember correctly, one, it's just a hockey culture thing; they're humble. But two, you think there's a Canadian aspect to it? Um, yeah, I will. I'll, I'll be bi- bipartisan in this answer, and I won't go. I won't represent one one. One culture, one country over another, but I, I think it's fair to say, without uh, without uh, stick, throwing myself to, into a hole, uh, hockey is is, uh, and I work across three professional leagues, so the NFL and NBA as well. Hockey to me seems to be the the league that that moves uh, a lot slower uh, than the other two leagues, and I, I don't know if it's if it's just historical, if it's just the humble beginnings. If it's a Canadiana thing, or if it's just a simple fact that uh, hockey is just a, a late adapter to to uh, to you know what what some of the other leagues have done, um, that would be my best guess. But that being said, uh, I would argue that opportunities are not necessarily endless, but our opportunities are there uh, in abundance 
if if you can add value and if there clearly is a need that's been identified and is being uh, is being you know addressed and managed. What kind of opportunities are we talking about for a coach that might have uh, grown uh, his brand, uh, you know, through the years? Well, Greg, the, I think I think one big opportunity, as I see it, because I'm in this 24 um, seven, is the fact that the game has become a lot more global. So you can argue that the NHL is the best league in the world, followed you know, followed by the KHL and followed by the you know the Swiss A League, et cetera, et cetera. To me, and the way I view these personal brands, is the common denominator is the coaching experience. The opportunities are not necessarily regional or local anymore. In other words, uh, I, I have a marketing ar- agreement uh, with, with a couple of different agencies in Europe uh, whereby leagues that have typically never even considered or even taken a sniff at a North American coach are now calling and saying, we'd like to consider throwing some North American candidates on our profile list. Hmm. How can we make that happen? Which is, which is fantastic. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll sh- I won't share names, a ton of my clients, but uh, just as an example, Dave Cameron, a uh, longtime NHL coach, was the former head coach of the Ottawa Senators, was most recently the, one of the coaches with the Calgary Flames before he got let go last year. Um, I, I arranged a situation for Dave to uh, move over to Europe, and Dave is now coaching uh, the Vienna Capitals in the, uh, in the Austrian League, which is called the Abel. And uh, I just looked at the standings this morning, and uh, his team is 12-1. and one. Um, uh, All because of coaching? No, but uh, a coach with experience, from a North American coach with experience, can absolutely have success in other parts of the world, is I think my point. So you do work with a bunch of high-profile NHL coaches, Mike Sullivan, John Tortorella, John Hines, Gerard Gallant. And you said that so much of your job, too, is about their personal brand and, and how they present themselves to the media. I'm curious, when you watch some of your guys talk and you have to call anybody out, you know, when they're speaking to the media, how often are you watching and saying, you know, that's just messaging. He doesn't believe that at all. Or he's, <laughs> you know, trying to make a point to X while saying Y. So I, I do monitor all of that stuff. Um, I, I'd like to think that, that I can be used as a sounding board before any messaging goes out. But... Uh, it, it, hockey is such an emotional and passionate sport uh, that that unfortunately emotions will sometimes uh, just get ahead of the of a well thought through process. So so uh, sure, I listen to the messages, and I mean, who am I to opine on what a coach is saying to a player or calling anybody out or anything? But depending on my relationship with my client. Uh, we'll go through that kind of stuff. We'll just talk through it because I'll bring it up and I'll say, you know, I saw what you said about so and so or whatever. Like, talk, you know, and and I think it's a, I think it's therapeutic for them uh, in a weird way to just be able to talk about it with somebody who is connected to them, um, but doesn't get in the way of them doing what they need to do. If that makes any sense. Sure. So, so you know, I didn't say at the beginning when I explained what I did that I was also a psychologist, <laughs> but um, there, there is there is some element of of therapy in in what I do, and and I don't know if it's a if it's a comfort thing or if it's a, a just a friendly voice or if it's somebody that understands the situation they're in that can maybe help them uh, either justify or validate something that may have happened. And as you said, hockey is an emotional sport. At this point. I'd like to talk about our previous relationship. So for those who don't know, Neil and I, why would you know unless you hacked my email? Neil and I uh, yelled at each other over email last year over John Hines, the uh, head coach of the New Jersey Devils. I believe that's what the topic at hand was. It was actually two years ago. It was, was in the in the, uh, the well, abysmal year they were having. It was, Mar- it was March 2017. So we're getting on two years, but it was two seasons ago, we should say. There you go. And so, you know... Neil's like the 700th person I've gotten into a nasty email exchange with in probably in the last two years. And so, uh, first off, sorry, I was mean. Secondly, um, and I've said this before in other places, but I don't think I've said it here. I was completely wrong. Like, John Hines is a good coach. <laughs> it was probably the headline that really threw me off more so than the, than the, than the article, but keep going. Well, I just, I think at the time it was like, you know, they were pretty bad and, you know, he wasn't having success and, and some of the metrics were moving in the wrong direction. But I think at the end of the day, 
it was clearly more of a problem of one of the one of the concepts that I always talk about um, in hockey, and I, and I actually think the LA Kings are going through it right now. Is it a, a problem with construction or is it a problem with coaching? And and my mistake was I thought it was a problem with coaching when in actuality it was a problem with construction. They had you know Heisher, they had Boyle, they had Butcher, and now all of a sudden he's got the the pieces to make the system that he's trying to get them to play fit better. So, so Greg, in fairness, I appreciate the apology, <laughs> but but I, I'm glad you bring it up because it it absolutely uh, absolutely you know hits the nail on the head relative to the, the 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 value of somebody like me in a client's life, and that is that that could have gone. Uh, I could have not called you out on it, uh, and I could have not challenged you on what you said. But as as the protector of the brand, in this case, John Hines. I didn't think that what was being said was was appropriate. Number one, but more importantly, I didn't think it was I didn't think it was justified. Which again, uh, you know, to give myself a little a few marks, I you know I came at you and said that's that's just not right. Um, case in point, nobody if I if I wasn't in his life, nobody else would have come to his defense. Right, and it's not about defending; it's about making sure that that the brand is being depicted accurately. That's the position that I come at it from. Because there's plenty of stuff that's written about my guys that, that I don't necessarily agree with, but I can understand why it's being written. And if I went after everybody that said anything negative, <laughs> that wouldn't be fair. But again, in, in that particular case, it was, it was not to rehash it, but it was very much about, uh, you know, he should be fired kind of thing. And right. it wasn't him. And right. I, I mean, of course, I knew that. Anyway, I'm glad we kissed and made up, but um, well, and did it over the air. But uh, that was that was where I was coming from. And, and as a follow up, though, I, I, it is inter- an interesting gig that you have because, especially in hockey, like as they say, you you can't fire the players. The general manager is in there blowing smoke to the owner about having five year plans. You know, every every five years, it's always the coach. Uh, more to the point, it's always the assistant coaches first, and then it's the head coach. So it, it must be interesting to be the advocate for what is and i don't mean this to be disparaging the most disposable occupation in, in hockey it, it is uh it is and, and again every situation is is circumstantial i know that sounds like a like a like a uh, sort of a flippant comment but i represent assistant general managers and general managers now as well which is natural progression for this business uh, because the other option is that I end up representing too many coaches, and I start to look and feel like a union, which is not which is not what I want to do, nor do I think is it the right thing to do. But um, you know, just talking about changes and making changes, I've had this conversation three times today already. Um, th- there are different, there are sort of different um, hot points that cause a decision to be made as to when a coach is is going to be kept on or be fired. And uh, there, there is no, there is, my point is, there is no textbook, and there is no simple process uh, manual that you go to and say, if A, B, and C happen, then the ultimate answer is that you fire the coach. Uh, there, there, are, there are general managers that, that you know, that, that really look at this uh, at a macro level and, and who know it better than anybody else and figure, you know, is this something that the general manager can change or can tweak? Or is, has the coach lost the room and lost the players, which, of course, is a disaster when that happens? Uh, or is it an owner that's just getting impatient or has expectations of a better performance record than a team is showing? So th- th- there, there, are, there are multiple, uh, there are multiple uh, motivational points on that decision, is what I'm trying to say. And it's, 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 it's challenging, but you know, my job is to try and use logic and rational thinking in terms of what the big picture might be looking like. Neil, last question for me. I think if there's any criticism of uh, the hiring of NHL coaches, especially from fans, it's that it's a retread. It's the same names again and again. And this year, for the first time, you know, we had two college coaches who were hired, uh, you know, simultaneously. And I'm just curious, you're someone who's always having conversations with people in hiring positions, including general managers. How open do you think they are to hiring outside the box? Is the attitude shifting and kind of what's the next frontier? Uh, it's a, that's a, actually a fantastic question. Um, and, and it's a question that I think about a lot 
because uh, you know, the, in the case of the of the Stars and the Rangers, who of course hired NCAA coaches, one who had some pro uh, David Quinn has uh, pro coaching experience from the AHL. Uh, Montgomery does not. But uh, to answer your question, I, I, it's again team specific, general manager specific. Um, but the outside the box thinking uh, that these two teams have now shown. I think is something that is is starting to creep its way into multiple multiple general managers' perspectives. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, so one of the the head coach of the Swedish national ice hockey team uh, is one of my clients. His name is Ricard Gromborg. Uh, he has had an unbelievable run uh, coaching you know the best Swedish NHL players in the world. I mean the the stats are off the charts. In terms of uh, in terms of uh, what that Swedish team has been able to do, now there's a guy who you know is, has an American passport, by the way, but <laughs> is is more American than he is Swedish. Uh, who brings, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that hockey has really gone global, that brings a different style of play uh, to the North American game. And last time I checked, if I look at any of the high-profile Swedish defensemen in the NHL. Using you know a Carlson or an Ekman Larson or a Hedman and you know the list goes on. The common denominator is they were all coached by Ricard Gromborg, whose defensive, offensive style is really what these guys learned. Because Gromborg coached the under 18s, the under 20s, the Worlds, and the Olympic team. So he's worked with these guys as they've grown up from from you know from from when, kids. When do you think he's going to get a gig in the NHL? Uh, I I can tell you I spent a lot of time with him and I spent time with the players that have played for him. He is more than ready to step into to an NHL uh, to an NHL gig. More than ready. And I I think that one of the challenges that we face is that you know people say, well, he's only coached tournament teams, only coached Olympics, never coached an eighty game schedule. He's coached in the WHL. He played NCAA hockey at St. Cloud. Uh, he, he, you know, understands the North American game and hockey. You know, yes, the rink is uh, the rink size is bigger uh, in Europe than than it is or internationally than it is in the NHL. Uh, I would argue it's tougher to coach an all-star team if you'd like at a World Championship where you have very little time to work with really talented players to get them to play together. Oh, and by the way, and win the you know win the World Championships two years in a row. Right. So that's an opinion. I get that, but uh, to me. The uh, the pushbacks uh, are are not are not well thought through. So the answer is sure. I'd love to see him in the NHL because uh, I think he's ready, and I, I think that there are some fantastic American Hockey League coaches that are more than ready to step into NHL head jobs. But I won't. You know, I don't want to broadcast my whole client list to you guys. But um, <laughs> you know, there there are there are quite a few people that are ready, and I'm hoping that general managers are open to the idea that to use Emily's word, that retreads are not necessarily the way to go. There you go. Neil, I'm happy we made our peace. I look forward to... Uh, I feel better. I'll sleep tonight. ...breaking bread with you at some point. You'll sleep tonight. <laughs> you haven't had a, a wink in the last two years because of our stat. All right, Neil. Thanks for joining us, man. We'll talk to you soon. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a great day. Our thanks, Neil Glassberg, for joining us to talk about coaches. And Emily, there's one thing you know about coaches, at least most of them. Hmm? They're snappy dressers. They can't go behind the bench... In a windbreaker and shorts, even though I think a lot of them would, and I guarantee you Bruce Boudreau would, they got to wear a fancy suit. And if you want to get it yourself a fancy suit, look no further than Indochino. I have mentioned many times that I'm an Indochino fan. I not only have a wedding tux courtesy of them, but also my favorite jacket courtesy of them, my little black suit jacket. Like the black dress for women, Emily, the black suit jacket for men. You can wear it for any occasion, including when you want to be a hip dad, you could wear it over a T-shirt. Um, don't do that because I do that. Indochino is the world's most exciting made-to-measure menswear company. They make suits and shirts to your exact measurements for an unparalleled fit and comfort. Uh, guys love the wide-ranging selection of high-quality fabrics and colors to choose from and the option to personalize the details, including your lapel, your lining pockets, buttons, and writing your own monogram. I very much endorse fancy, cool designs on the inside of your jackets. So you can flash and go, pa-pow! as you show how cool they look on the inside. Here's how it works. You visit a stylist in their showroom. You have them take your measurements personally or measure at home yourself and shop online at Indochino.com. You choose your fabric. You choose your design customizations. 
submit your measurements, and then relax while your suit gets professionally tailored and mailed to you in a couple of weeks. Now, this is what you need to do. Any listener to this very podcast, ESPN on Ice, can get any premium Indochino suit for just 359 bucks at Indochino.com when entering ICE. That's I-C-E at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for made-to-measure premium suits, plus fish, uh, shipping is free. Fishing is probably also free, if, depending on where you fish. That's Indochino.com, promo code ICE, I-C-E, for any premium suit for just 359 bucks with free shipping, plus they made some. They do some made-to-measure chinos that will quickly become your favorite go-to pant, pairing as easily with a suit jacket as to do with a sweater, and they'll be good any time of the year for any occasion. Indochinos, get it, are at an introductory price of seventy-nine bucks U.S. And now, of course, it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Good one, Randy. Oh. Good one. <laughs> It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs, the segment each week in which we look at the foibles, the aggrandizing, the hyperbole, and the errors of our friends in the hockey media. I hate to do this because I love this man, but Justin Bourne of The Athletic is this week's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. We got into it on Twitter, as all of Toronto saw this week, because he said, quote, about Willie Nylander, there has to be a point where if you're Nylander, you go to your agent and say, hey, I'm starting to hear the word, the word trade a lot, and I'd rather not play in Carolina, parentheses, no offense to Carolina, but could we maybe be okay with a bit less, hope we win, and make big sponsorship money? I put this here because the idea that Willie Nylander as maybe the second best player on another team, or second best forward on another team, and the contract that would go along with that, would be able to make up that bridge of money by appearing at car dealerships in greater Ontario. It's just nonsense to me. Like, I understand the idea that Toronto is this beautiful world of, of, of hockey love where if you're Wendell Clark or Doug Gilmore, you can go to the opening of a, of a Harvey's hamburger place and make a bunch of money on a Sunday because you happen to have been a Leaf. I get that. I understand it. I understand the opportunities there for Nylander now are probably in greater excess than they are in Raleigh. But the idea that you're going to take less money in a place where the taxes are super crazy high because you might get that extra endorsement deal from, you know, the local menswear shop is nuts to me. And it it is the most Toronto-centric argument that I've heard in a long time. Don't take the money in your contract. Fall in line is fifth best behind Matthews and Marner and, and Tavares and Riley and Morgan Riley. You know, do that because, you know, you could probably make it up with at a golf tournament in the summer. So here's what I'll say. I've had conversations with NHL marketing agents um, about where their clients go and where is the worst place for them to go. And I do know there is a big difference between the money you can get in some markets versus others. And I'm so sorry to Carolina for they're always the butt of these jokes. But I think you brought this point up. I feel like Nylander's most of his supplemental income has to be because of endorsements back at home in Sweden. And would those not be non-dependent on what team he plays in the NHL? Yeah, it's it's because he plays in the NHL. <laughs> like, right. If he's if he's putting up points in the NHL, I yeah, feel like those endorsements are still coming in Sweden. But I also think that the, that part of the equation here that like Justin and, and the people that supported this idea are looking at is, is the assumption that he's going to win a cup. The assumption that this team's going to win a cup and he's going to be on that team. And once he becomes one of the guys that wins for the first time since 67, now you write, you can basically write your own check. Like that's the assumption there is if you stay in Toronto and they win, oh boy, you can just go anywhere. Yeah, but what if you win in Carolina with their cool goal celebration? Well, or win in New York. You know, like this, this zero sum idea that like it's either Carolina or Toronto. Like what? The Rangers aren't going to be in on Willie Nylander? Come on, this is nonsense. It's a, it's the most. I, I I I love the Leafs. I think it's great for hockey when they eventually win. But damn it, I'm gonna hate this. I'm gonna hate them being good because when the gravity of the hockey world is swirling around that city, it's the worst. All right, I think this is just a self defense mechanism for you to brace yourself for the inevitable. For the inevitable, yeah. All right, now it's time for puck headlines. <laughs> Dateline Philly. 
oh, hey, look, the Flyers are struggling again, and it's early in the season. Said Coach Dave Haxtall, I'm not ducking it. We didn't have a great start in their 4-1 Monday night loss to Colorado. We played a pretty good hockey game when you look at the whole ball of wax here. But you have to get off to a better start to give yourself that opportunity, building uh, that momentum in your own building, yada, yada, yada. Are the Flyers in trouble, Emily? I'm trying to remember the date. I feel like it was the first week of November last year when we were talking about that closed-door meeting with Dave Haxtell after mm-hmm. the fire Haxtell chants uh, swarmed Philly and were like, you know, this guy's gone. And what happened? They ended up being a playoff team and being pretty good. Uh, I think it's interesting. Ron Hexel said, I'm a pretty patient guy, but things start need to get going better here. Yes, they've had some early injuries that are unfortunate, including JVR. I think as long as their goaltending is what it is, as long as they keep getting off the slow starts and the poor penalty killing, the, those latter two are coaching issues. Uh, they are in trouble, but I think those three things can be fixed. Eh, the goaltending can't be fixed unless they get a new guy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, so the good news is that Michael Neuverth is, is working his way back, and I've seen people kind of ridiculing the idea that, you know, oh, Michael Neuverth was going to save the day. He's a very competent goalie. His save percentage last year was quite good. The, the issue with the Flyers right now is that goaltending is the issue. I mean, goaltending for this team is atrocious right now, and uh, and, and one hopes that you know, maybe him coming back and maybe solidify the position. Uh, maybe not. Who's to say? But but the goaltending is the issue right now, and 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 hopefully they can get it turned around because I quite like the Flyers and their dumb mascot. And you know what? Yeah, Carter Hart can't imagine a situation where he's on the NHL roster this year because a they've already committed to their patient approach of giving an AHL season. Mm-hmm. B if you throw him in now, you could totally screw with all of his psyche and development. So. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're saying, by God, that's Carter Hart's music is not going to happen for this team. I don't see it. Well, we'll find out. Let's get save this clip so I can save, yeah, save like this idiot. save this clip. As, I don't as, see it as the season goes on, and Carter Hart is the savior of the Flyers. Dateline Los Angeles. Oh, speaking of early season struggles, hey, look, everyone, the Kings are super old now and they can't win. Uh, Drew Doughty on their funk. I don't believe. I, I don't feel like we're in a funk when I'm out there on the ice, but I do feel like once things go bad, that it really goes south rather than when things go bad, we pick each other up and come back and get a goal. When things have been going wrong, a bad bounce for the, or here or there, things have been going south. So you can talk and say that things have been lucky for other teams as much as maybe as they have been. You've got to go to work and get the luck back on our side. And we have been working and competing. Um, that's all true. I'll also say this, man, like, you know, Dustin Brown is a guy who gets much maligned by hockey fans and hockey pundits as being not very good and also not being worth the money. But, I mean, there are some glue guys in this league, and there's no question that taking him out of that lineup when it is a question of hustle, when it is a question of effort, a guy who can be a catalyst, you ask anybody in that locker room, man, they miss him. And and that is one reason why this team is off to a very lousy start in, in L.A. The two things I'll say on L.A., one, I still think the Pacific Division is a dumpster fire, and there's a very good chance that a mediocre team can rise out of it. Uh, two, uh, we all said before the season they're a slow and old team. They kind of just look like a slow and old team. They are what we thought they were. <laughs> they are who I thought they were! Right? Uh, Alright, Dateline Seattle. Emily Kaplan has some tea on the Seattle GM job once they get the team in December. Yeah, so I started to ask around on this because I'm just so curious about timelines, right? We keep comparing them to Vegas of, you know, what's going on. And I've heard they've been very aggressive and, you know, even bringing people in for interviews for other positions. And so I asked someone who's kind of in the know about these things, uh, what names we might hear pop up as shortlist guys for uh, the GM position. Um, and two names came to mind right away. One was Sean Burke and the other is Lawrence Gillis. Um, I think you'll see a lot of people mentioned who have ties to the Lewickies. One person who I think is interesting that will probably be mentioned by media, I just don't know if it's very feasible, is Geiserman, right? He was hired by a Lewicky in Tampa Bay and apparently has a house in British Columbia. I did not know that. Ooh. I don't see that happening. Now you're, I, talking, I you're talking Lawrence Gilman, right? Yes. The, uh, what you, did you, I say, Gillis? You, well, you mixed up your old uh, failed Vancouver uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, executives. <laughs> but no, yeah, Gil- Gilman's the guy that I think is, is going to definitely be on the radar. Burke's really interesting because he's you know, he's got ties to Dave Tippett, who's with the organization. He's the guy who's been involved in Hockey Canada. Uh, he's put in his time to try to figure out how to be an executive, and I feel like maybe um, he's an interesting choice. But, you know, it, it, it what really will be fascinating, though, is if it's sort of a guy like Sean Burke who's new to the gig, 
that is the polar opposite of what Vegas did in hiring George McPhee. They hired a veteran GM who had previous relationships with other guys in this league who was able to uh, pull some ridiculous trades before the expansion draft happened to bolster that team. And I'm not necessarily sure that Sean Burke is going to have those types of relationships and that level of trust with other executives to make those deals. But I think he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. Well, and the last piece of information I would share with you is think about the one big hire they've made already, and that's Dave Tippett. Mm -hmm. And I would be shocked if he doesn't have some kind of bigger role with the team. I don't know if it's coach. I don't know if it's in management, but uh, he seems to be the guy they're leaning on right now. There you go. Uh, Dateline Long Island. Uh, rest in peace, Charles Wong, the Shanghai-born, Brooklyn-raised Wong, uh, purchased the Islanders along with a business partner in 2000 for $187.5 million. He served as, as majority owner until 2016 when he sold the team to Ledecky and Malkin for about $485 million. Um, you know, the legacy of Charles Wong uh, as, an, as Islanders owner will be uh, debated for many, many years to come. The short form of it for me is that he didn't hire the right people at all at times. Um, but there is absolutely no question that his love of that franchise is the only reason why the Islanders are still in New York. They he would be them with love. Oh, he would have, they would be the Kansas, the Kansas City Islanders, even I think though it's landlocked. Uh, they'd be the Quebec City, whatever, <laughs> anywhere. They'd be the Islanders anywhere right now other than Long Island. It were it not for Charles Wong, and uh, and for that, the man deserves credit. So rest in peace, Charles Wong. Finally, Dateline, Venom. I saw it. It's not a good movie, but my God, is it entertaining. It is one of the most enter- one of the best times I've had in a movie theater in quite a long time was at Dumb Venom, which is basically Tom Hardy overacting in a Jekyll and Hyde movie, um, and it is, it's just great. Maybe it's not having to... Think about how it connects to the larger world of the MCU or whatever it is. Maybe it's just Venom is such an over-the-top, ridiculous character. I don't know what it is, man, but like I I got to be honest with you. I, I had a ton of fun at this movie with the complete knowledge the entire time that the movie is crap. Well, that's good. I recently saw Bad Times at El Royale. And? I really liked it. Very Quentin Tarantino-esque. A little long, though. My boyfriend and I decided to do the 7 p.m. showing instead of the 10.20, and that was definitely the right call. Mm. I would have fallen asleep. Yeah, that's the good thing about uh, Venom. It's basically as long as uh, one of the challenges on Chopped. Mm. So you can walk in and get out pretty quick. It's, it's pretty just great. like the appetizer round, 20 Aline. minutes on the clock. Yeah, exactly, because Venom eats people. Good synergy. Ooh. All right, now it's time for the ESPN and Ice rant line. I'm telling you, the Phoenix Coyotes are going to win the Stanley Cup. Ranta with new pads, .999 save percentage. Hi, this is Zach from Toronto. There's this new trend I've noticed for hockey pundits and hockey announcers to pluralize singular words. So an example would be, oh, Pittsburgh's got some great scoring. We're talking the Crosbys, the Malkins. Why don't we just say Pittsburgh has some great scoring, like Crosby and Malkin? Is any new information being conveyed by saying this? So please let me know if anyone feels the same way. I honestly can't think of anything more politically blues than adding a superstar like Ryan O'Reilly, Tyler Bozak, Patrick Maroon. Just a better team than we were last year and just absolutely sucking. Thank you for your time. Tequila. So that's a lot of information there. Um, first off, I like the first guy because he called them the Phoenix Coyotes. <laughs> God bless. Uh, the third guy I like because uh, the lament of the Blues fan is always such a frustrating thing. Um, you know, I I tend to believe that if they don't turn this around, Mike Yo is probably not long for this coaching world. The person in the middle makes a very good point about the Crosbys and the Malkins. It reminded me of uh, an old friend of mine named Jimmy Patterson who ran Sports Fan Magazine in Washington, D.C., who's a dedicated and uh, willing follower of the Washington Capitals through many, many bad years until finally winning the Cup this year. He had a, a, a thing that he used to do when talking about sports teams. So let's say the Jets are playing the Jaguars this weekend. He'd come over to me and he'd be like, so who do you think's going to win this weekend, the New Yorks or the Jacksonvilles? And it reminded me of this Malkins and Crosby's bit. He would never refer to the team by their nickname. He would just pluralize the city. Do you think the Golden States are going to win? So I don't know why that was relevant to this, but I guess it was. You know what? On behalf of the Boudreaux's out there, the Glassbergs, the Emily's, (laughs) the Greg's, the Wyshynski's, 
Uh, we appreciate all of those rants. I thought those were all amazing. And but, uh, yeah. if you've got something short or long, I don't know. If you just want to call, it's 860-516-1029. And just be like one of the rants of the world. Indeed. We have a new segment we're going to debut next week. You're going to want to tune in for it and play along. For those who like when I introduce reindeer games into my podcasts, you're definitely going to like this one where Emily, Emily and I will battle each week over a hockey fact. It's going to be great. Um, that's ESPN on Ice for this week. Once again, I wish we could pull the curtain back and see all of the adventures that Emily and I go on to try to make this dumb podcast work every week from a technical level. But that's why we love our producer, Ryan, for making this whole thing fly and uh, and pulling it together uh, despite all that behind-the-scenes chaos. Anyway, uh, ESPN Plus, remember that, folks. That's where all you can find daily NHL games. Subscribe to it. It's great stuff. And watch Linda Cohen, our good friend, on uh, on uh, the highlight show at night. And then um, as well as that, go to the iTunes page for our dumb podcast and please leave uh, reviews and comments. It helps people find the podcast better if you dig it. Please do say so. If you don't, I mean, you could say it. It's fine. But you've listened to this long in the podcast. I think you like it. Or maybe you just forgot to shut it off. I do that all the time with stuff. And you're just waking up to this right now. <laughs> God. Or or you did that thing where you're listening to a podcast on your on your earbuds, and then you put your earbuds down, and you come back and put it back in. And you're like, I've been playing this the entire time. <laughs> and then you do one of two things, which is you go to the next podcast, or you furiously hit the back 30 seconds button to try to figure out exactly where you put your headphones down. And then you furiously review us and tell us how much we suck. Exactly. All right. I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can find me on Twitter, at Wyshynski, and find all my writing at ESPN.com. Emily Kaplan at Emily M. Kaplan and also on ESPN.com. All right. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.